I am going to be speaking to us about the afterlife, knowing what happens when we die so we know how to live. And in my preparation, I was reminded of a phone call 22 years ago. I can still remember exactly how I felt. I was upstairs, I was on a, my parents' bed, and I was chained to my mate who had cystic fibrosis, which is a disease which eventually um, leads to your lungs just being flooded with fluid and you take your last breath. He wasn't expected to make it into his 20s, but he made it to 21. And he called me because he was going to die the next day. And he wanted me to speak at his memorial. And we were just chatting. And I remember the sort of harrowing feeling when I said to him, bro, you're going to find out tomorrow. You're going to find out tomorrow. Like, what happens? And he said, yeah, I am. And I remember speaking at his memorial. And, you know, you can speak at all kinds of occasions, say lots of things. But a memorial is totally different. A memorial is like, is this real? Because if it's real, it changes everything. And if it's a lie, how diabolical is it to deal with something as sensitive as death with, with a bunch of lies? How do you know what's real and what isn't? And it set me on a journey. I remember going to um, the minister where I'd been going to church at the time, and I said, bro, I'm rolling up my sleeves. I've been studying finance hard, but I realized due to recent events, I really want to be studying life hard. Like, tell me, what does the Bible say about death? And he said, well, first of all, I don't really believe in the Bible. I was like, what? <laughs> You're the church minister. Bit of a curveball there, right? So I changed churches. Um, I... I but I mean, I, I was like, what? Uh, I remember going to my mate's advice. I said, guys, my mate died. What do you think? Like, let's talk. Like, let's cut through the, the, the clutter here. And they said, you know, Paul, you're just investigating death because you're scared. If you were brave, if you had some courage, you would face death. You don't have to worry about it, man. Your only, your only weakness is leading you to question this thing. And I thought, okay, it comes across as quite like, strong and courageous, but it's also quite prideful when you don't even investigate the question, you just kind of write it off as only for weak people. I thought, guys, I don't know if that's the right approach. I remember chatting to my girlfriend at the time. We'd been in a three-year relationship, and ultimately we would break up because we were both coming at this from different angles, going like, this is really important. She's going, I don't think it is. I visited all over the place, and, um, and it started a big journey in my life. I don't, know, I don't know if you sitting here tonight can relate to that. Have you ever been asked to speak at a memorial? Have you ever considered these matters of death? Maybe not spoken out loud, but in like, in, in that quiet moment before you fall asleep, you've thought about it. And I think you'd probably acknowledge that it's an incredibly important question. But yet we tend to avoid it. It tends to lead to quite a lot of confusion. And it could also create a huge amount of heat rather than light. Because here's the deal. None of us are impartial. When it comes to, to this question of the afterlife, all of us have skin in the game. All of us are going to live by whatever you know, we believe is true. And, and we're certainly going to fight about what we think is true. So welcome, if you're a guest here tonight. You've chosen a great Sunday to be with us. I don't know if you were invited or you saw the invite on the notice board, but we are going to be looking at the afterlife for the next five weeks. And our thesis is that if we know what happens when we die, we're actually going to live all of our life in a, in a more informed and more lively way. Today's an introduction. The next two weeks are going to then be on, on heaven, and then the last two weeks will be on hell. What are we chatting about tonight? We're answering three questions. What happens when you die? There's a lot of confusion around that. Why does it matter? I'm going to make the case that it's an incredibly important one. And then does Jesus have something to offer? And the news is, yes, he does. He's got an invitation for us. So what happens when we die? I did what everyone does. I Googled this question, and Google auto kind of completes it. So people searching generally ask for what happens when you die according to the Bible? Strong start. What happens when you die in a dream? What happens when you die? Where do you go? 
What happens when you die unexpectedly? What happens if you die without a will? That's not a good, not a good answer. What happens when you die Bible verses? What happens when you die Islam? What happens when you die in Grand Theft Auto? <laughs> Which made the top 10. What happens when you die before your time? The final one, what happens when you die in space? Which is like a really interesting Venn diagram of, of life would lead you in that direction. But although we can laugh at some of these now, I would say that behind most of these searches would be someone who's kind of hit rock bottom, who's asking a really fundamental question that we generally don't talk a lot about. There's someone who's going, either this is my life or it is a friend's life, it's a loved one's life. And we'd do well to pause and actually think about the quality of this research we put into this. I'm going to share another memory with you. Finally, a business science. We're in our finance tutorial. I still remember it's in the zoology block somewhere. The, the, the chalkboard goes up, and our finance lecturer says, look, we're going to get into some finance, but we've got to settle some stuff before we get started. He said, firstly, where did we come from? Questions of origin. And he drew the following timeline. He said, really, there are two big buckets of where we came from. The one bucket is chance. We just kind of randomly bumped up against each other over a period of time, and here we are. The second is there's a creator. There's monumental debates around the mechanisms that could have got us to here, but really there's a fundamental choice between chance or creation and a creator. And then he jumped across the other side and he said, you've got to then ask questions of destiny. It gets slightly more nuanced here. But he says, again, there are really not a lot of options here. Either nothing happens. In other words, we came by chance and we're going to disappear one day from dust into dust. Nothing's going to happen. And he said that leads to some rather depressing conclusions about the meaning of life right now. We can try and scratch around for things that make us happy. But largely, if anyone ever tells you to do something, you just look at them and say, says who? Says who? Debit should be a debit. Says who? Yeah. Then a group of people got together and said, no, wait, I think we're actually going to become one. We're going to finally live in paradise together. And this is sort of slightly more uh, meaningful than, than nothingness. But as the lecturer pointed out, well, who's going to be in paradise? Everyone's going to be in paradise. So what happens if you bump up against Adolf Hitler in paradise? Is that going to be a good feeling? It's like, oh, wait, I hadn't thought that through. What kind of criteria then would, would, would be allowing us into paradise? And that's where the third section then comes in. Nothing, paradise, all judgment. That there's some kind of filter that gets applied. And he said that filter would get applied according to um, a different basis that people put forward. But some people would go to heaven, some would go to hell, and then some would say, there's actually an iterative process that you get graded on the life you just led and you get reintroduced, reincarnation into life and you keep going in a cycle until such time as you reach um, a kind of state of bliss which then leads you into paradise. My finance lecturer put that up and you can imagine this was quite an unusual finance lecture. I'm going to get back to how he concluded it just now. But really, if we sit down and map it out, those are the options. Questions of origin, questions of destiny, and not all of them can be right at the same time. There's, there's an investigation that's called of us. But I'd say that there are a few things that stop us, perhaps, from searching out answers. The first one is that there's a little bit of confusion. I mean, I've mapped this out, but, but there's actually a lot of information that you can get caught up in. People saying there are different versions of paradise, different things. Some exclude the bad guys, the really bad guys. Some don't, but on what basis? More recently, there's a, been a move towards a kind of theory that says one day when this ends, we're going to all just wake up, and then we're going to be like, oh, it was all a dream, but then we're in another world where we're like, oh, no, but now I'm alive again, so now where did I come from, what happens when I die, and then, and then when, we, when that ends, we wake up again, so it's just like multiple levels of inception, and we're actually already in the future, but we're having these fun lives here in our dreams just to pass the time because we live forever. These are the confusing theories that people are considering. 
And I'd also say that this isn't for Christ followers just to kind of look down their nose and go, oh, everyone else is so confused. No, I think we can be confused as well. There's a bunch of people that believe that this world is, is all going to burn. And that's why it doesn't matter what happens to the environment or anything. Man, this physical world, is not, it doesn't matter. We're going to go up into clouds one day. We're going to be in harps with wings singing. The physical world is going to fade away. That actual thinking is much more Greek than it is biblical. Because when we look at Scripture, we don't see heaven and earth passing away. We actually see heaven coming to earth. Do you know that the phrase go to heaven is never used in the Bible? You're going to go to heaven is never used in the Bible, not even once. But we see heaven coming to earth, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. When God created, heaven and earth were together, God and, and man together. And yet in our rebellion, we separated. But Jesus Christ inaugurated the kingdom coming back. And one day he will bring it back fully as heaven and earth are united. We started in a garden, we're going to end in a city. Jesus in his resurrected body was eating fish, hanging out with people. Good news, we eat in heaven. But there's some confusion about that. We need to clear it up over the next couple of weeks. And also, in this whole topic of judgment and hell, we notice that there can sometimes be Christ followers who with a bit of a glee in their eyes say, I'm right, you're wrong, and you're going to burn for being wrong. Which is just a, a terrible attitude to have. No wonder we create more heat than light on this topic. It's a smugness that Jesus never had and which, quite frankly, is diabolical. And so there's a lot of confusion around the message of Jesus in this area, and we don't want to continue it. But besides confusion, I would say there's actually just a huge amount of avoidance. It's like it's something we don't like to talk about. We try to avoid. There's humor. Humor is a way you can avoid it. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, said, all I want to know is where I'm going to die, so I'll never go there. I remember there was someone, an um, uh, American comedian, that said, oh, I never got it. Old people read their Bible so much. And then I remembered, they're just cramming for their final exam. Humor is a way we try and avoid discussion. Another way we can avoid it is, is the kind of what my boss teammates did, which is kind of a rage against the dying of the light kind of mantra. You can go and look on Amazon. They have the most highlighted quotes from different books, and this is one of the most highlighted quotes is from George R.R. R. Martin in his um, trilogy. I don't know what it is, but he's got a, a series of books out. What do we say to the Lord of death? Not today. It's kind of seen as like a not today. And that's great, except if it's not today, it will be someday, probably soon. Death comes to all of us. It's all Gawanda, who's quite a, a, a rare person in the sense he's a medical doctor, surgeon, but he's also a writer for the New Yorker. His father got sort of inoperable cancer, and together with him, they, they walked the last few months together. And he wrote a book called Being Mortal, uh, Medicine and What Matters in the End. And he said the following, he said, if end-of-life discussions were an experimental drug, the FDA would approve it. The Food and, and Drug Administration of America would approve it, because it makes such a difference to the quality of someone's experience towards the end of their life to have had a discussion almost before they needed to have the discussion. And yet, knowing that, it's incredibly hard to bring up the topic of death because it brings up a whole bunch of fears and anxieties and insecurities. We quite simply don't want to broach the topic. Him and his father, however, being medical doctors, do broach it, and they write a book about it and has all kinds of practical insights into what needs to happen. But what happens when you die? There are a bunch of options. 
There are a bunch of options. It started a, a memorial, started a journey in my heart. I don't know if you've started this journey or not. I can highly recommend that you do. And I want to motivate you by discussing with you why now, why it matters, why it matters. My finance lecturer continued. He said, okay, origin, you've got to settle that. Destiny, you've got to settle that. And all of the reason is so that you can settle purpose. You can settle purpose. And he said, all of you guys are final year finance students, so you've obviously decided that the key to your happiness is finance. The key to happiness is money. So you've already landed on your answer. The meaning of life is money. Are you just sure that you're consistent in that? Are you sure that you've picked the right meaning of life? It's kind of provocative. You know? Are you sure you've picked the right thing? You guys are studying hard. You're going to give up years of your life for articles. Are you sure it isn't like relationships that should be at the center or experiences? I mean, have you picked money wisely? And you can imagine it was quite a, quite a nice discussion in the zoology tutorial. And, you know, the typical, like, is this going to be in the exam, came up a few times. Now, he was making the point that if you believe we're here by chance and nothing happens when you die, then really purpose is up to you to decide. It's something you completely can create. But if you believe there's a creator and you believe that there's some kind of judgment, then when you lean into purpose, you're asking a different set of questions. Going, what have I been created for? What is the definition of a good life? What is my creator made known? It's a completely different life. And then that's the fourth question, which is around morality or truth. How do you know what the good life looks like? Quite frankly, there are things that our grandparents did that we're quite embarrassed by. Like, I can't, I can't believe they used to say that. I can't believe they used to do that. And yet, I'm pretty sure our grandkids are going to say the exact same thing about us today. We just don't know what part of it that we're going to be making ourselves very embarrassed by. To go with the herd and think that's this measure of mor morality is almost to guarantee that you're going to be outdated. But if you want eternal consequence, you need to build your life on that which is eternal which is something we're going to discuss today. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? It matters because eternity is a long time, just to state the obvious. We're going to live roughly on average 4,000 weeks. That's it. I'm already over 2,000 weeks. I'm, I'm on the downhill. I'm coming back home. If this was a run on the prom, I've already turned. I'm on my way home compared to the average. My dad joyfully pointed out to me that he's got six weeks left according to the average. I was like, Frankie, you're going to make it, buddy. You're going to make it. But the bottom line is those 4,000 weeks fly compared to eternity. It's well worth investigating what, what happens for eternity. The second thing to point out and why it matters is that it affects the life we lead before death. Before death. I mean, if we know where we're going and we've set the questions of origin and destiny, then purpose and morality are, are shaped by how we've answered those questions. Just think about your decision-making. Just think about your decision-making. You're either living a life in obedience to the Creator, aligned with how He designed you, or not. If, if you believe in, in eternity, suddenly your ability to sacrifice and to love generously is, is a lot easier. You used to sort of squabble over things that you now realize aren't nearly as valuable as what lasts for eternity. It's almost like you, you're fighting over drachmas when the euro is about to come in. And you're like, why worry about drachmas when the euro is about to run and it's going to last for a lot longer? Well, how about this whole thing of, of fear of missing out, FOMO? I mean, if life is all there is, then you've got to get going with that bucket list. You've got to hit your 40 things before you turn 40. I mean, you've got to get busy carpe dieming every little moment, right? Your morning routine better be on point. Your everything better be on point. There are places to see, foods to eat. But then if... If Jesus is coming with a renewed earth, you'd have more than enough time to hang out on that Fijian island with the spring box. 
There's not going to be a bus in the way. Chatting about Peter Steff's game again and again and again within earshot of the New Zealanders. There's going to be more than enough time to eat anything you want. And on this side of eternity, we've got five senses. Imagine how many senses we'll have when we've got a renewed body. Christ is the one who went ahead of us, the first fruits. We get to be raised in glory with him. Imagine what that's going to be like, walking through walls. I think we're going to fly. I don't have a base for that. Carl, we'll clear that up next week. But the bottom line is our lives before death get shaped by what we understand is coming. What about forgiveness? What about forgiveness? You see, if, if there is no judgment, if there is no judgment, then it's incredibly hard to forgive people on this side of eternity. But isn't it marvelous that people who've had genocide committed against them, people that have suffered terribly, have found incredible resource in knowing that there is a just God who will appear before all of us and who will judge 100% correctly, and no one will get away with anything. You see, forgiveness only really becomes possible when you know that there's someone else who takes full responsibility for justice, and therefore you don't need to. And you can hand over the circumstance of your life and the pain of your life to that God. No one gets away with anything. And so you see, our lives before death get radically shaped by what we believe happens after death. And the final point to make, to just get us excited about why this is an important issue, is that we all will die. We all will die. It's been sobering reading about it. Um, people sharing vulnerably about some of their fears. Loss of hearing, loss of sight. What about losing all my friends? Losing my mind to dementia. These are all legitimate fears. Philip Roth, who's an author, put it rather bitterly in his novel, Every Man, when he said, old age is not a battle. Old age is a massacre. I'm going to repeat that again. Old age is not a battle. Old age is a massacre. That's a sobering sentence, but it's true. And we're all going to face it one day. Atul Gawande, remember the author, doctor, he wrote the following. The quote will appear on the screen. He said, being mortal is about the struggle to cope with the constraints of our biology. With the limits set by genes and cells and flesh and bone, medical science has given us remarkable power to push against these limits. And the potential value of this power was a central reason I became a doctor. But again and again, I have seen the damage we in medicine do when we fail to acknowledge that such power is finite and always will be. We've been wrong about what our job is in medicine. We think our job is to ensure health and survival, but really it is larger than that. It is to enable well-being. And well-being is about the reasons one wishes to be alive. Those reasons matter not just at the end of life or when debility comes, but all along the way. Those reasons matter not just at the end of life and when debility comes, but all along the way. Your reasons for living don't just apply at the end of your life, but apply throughout your life. That's why our series is entitled Afterlife, Knowing What Happens When You Die So That We Know How to Live. We need to clear up the confusion. We need to get crystal clear on what sits at the bedrock because it is so important. Now, we have good news. We have good news as a community. It's not found in us, but it's found in the person of Jesus Christ who we point towards. Does Jesus have something to offer us? Yes, he has an invitation. So let's go back to our diagram. We have got a picture of all the options, and I kind of just want to flow through it now with an appreciation for what Jesus does in each of these topics. Like I say, tonight's an introduction. We're going to be looking at his full teaching on heaven and hell into the future. 
But if we look at the big questions of origin, destiny, purpose, and healing in Jesus Christ, we have someone who answers these questions fully. He is intellectually satisfying and soul satisfying. You see, when I was a lecturer, um, helping people become chartered accountants, life was quite simple. You'd meet them in February, you'd get them ready for their board exam, and out would pop a result at the end. It was easily quantifiable and measurable. I'd have my different years, you know, the class of 2006, the class of 2008. It was like, I was like a fine winemaker with my different grapes coming through the system. And, you know, 2010, terribly distracted by the World Cup, a bit of a bitter experience. You know, and you'd... You'd kind, of, you'd kind of be able to go through it, and it was beautiful, and I'd have a lovely break at the end of the year, and then I became a pastor, and quite frankly, it became a lot harder to measure. Like, how, how do you measure these things of the soul? And the one thing I landed on was to realize that actually my job in a world of endless possibilities and endless distractions, noise, trying to keep our attention off what really matters, my job is to help people in this part of the world focus on who is eternally important, to help people focus on Jesus Christ. Because... He has come, and importantly, towards the end, when it comes to death, he's the one person who died and has come again in resurrected power. He wasn't revived from death. He didn't sort of reappear, which has happened to many, many people. He's someone who passed through death, was resurrected. He's something completely unique. If someone's looking into the claims of Jesus, can I say that really why we gather is because he's resurrected. If he isn't resurrected, it's a massive waste of time. I mean, it may be nice tea and coffee, but it's not going to help us after the life. It's not going to help us at all after life. But if he is resurrected, that changes everything. He is the creator who came to his creation as a baby, who lived life full of purpose, full of morality that we never could. And in his death, he became our substitute so that instead of us facing the death and the judgment that should have been placed on us, he represents us. Our sin is given to him, our rebellion is given to him, and then his righteousness, his perfect record is given to us and massaged into our lives from the moment we accept him as Lord, as Savior, by the Holy Spirit that transforms us from the inside out. We then get to live life now before death. It's an incredible incredible truth. If it's not true, then we're to be pitied. But if it's true, it changes everything. You might say, Paul, aren't you overstating Jesus a little bit here? I mean, you're really putting it all on him. I'd say, yes, I am. And I'm going to quote a poem that was written about his life. Just, just how unimpressive is this LinkedIn resume, okay? But yet, look at the influence that he had. I'll read the poem to you. It says, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant, he grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an iterant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to university. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 
21 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I'm well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. That poem is called One Solitary Life. You can find it on Google. And this unimpressive CV, which has completely turned the world upside down, I would suggest is precisely because he holds the keys of life, something he himself says he did. And his invitation to each and every one of us, regardless of how we found her tonight, is the same as it's always been. Come follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Come be with me, come become like me, and come and do what I created you to do. Sign up for apprenticeship to me. You see, Jesus didn't just get resurrected and then preach and then leave. He's resurrected, alive, and in charge. Let's read together from Mark chapter 16. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He's the first who's resurrected, and all those that follow him will follow him in that resurrection glory. He's seated at the right hand. He's in charge. And he longs to speak to us around purpose and meaning and what our lives are about. So remember my finance lecture, I kind of provocatively said, all of you have charged me child accounts. You guys worship money. That's your major thing, right? That's what you've settled on. He was kind of poking the bear a little bit. And Jesus would look at that and say, nah, I, I see why it's an attractive God substitute. I can see why money's gripped you. It's measurable. It gives you access to pleasure. It gives you some security. It keeps you busy, you know, while everyone else is doing other things. You can count the coins. But here's the danger. You can never have enough of it. And so Jesus says the following when he gathered his apprentices around him. Let's listen to Jesus. He said, do not, lay, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor, um, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus is seated at the right hand. Jesus is trying to help us understand how he made us. And Jesus is speaking about heaven. Jesus is saying, There's, there is something coming where every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more illness. There is a place where treasure that's truly treasure is available. Who decides? Who decides who goes in there and out there? How, how does that work? If, if, if there is this place, Paul, tell me more about it. Well, let's read from Luke 23. Jesus is getting crucified between two thieves. And he said to him, the other thief next to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Incredible. This thief next to him never attended common ground, never went to life group, never had to serve tea and coffee, never got baptized. This thief next to him just got introduced to paradise, that heaven Jesus spoke about where, where moth and rust destroy. He's there. He's in there. And suddenly all of us go, woohoo, this is working good. This afterlife is equally in paradise right now in my mind. Regardless of how I live, I can be the captain of my own soul. I can do it my way, Frankie Sinatra style. I remember chatting to a South African cricketer. He was desperately trying to get his mates to believe in Jesus. And his mates would sincerely say, man, we've worked it out. We are international cricketers. We're living the life. We are gonna, we're going to live the life. But don't worry, bro. Just before we die, we're going to convert. We're going to pray the prayer. And that was their genuine strategy. It was like the sinner on the cross strategy. They were like, 
This feels good. There are a couple of confusions. One, confusion is the good life equals running away from God, which I suggest runs a little bit lame after a while, despite all his promises, it underdelivers. The second misconception is somehow your heart is not going to be hardened towards God as you choose to walk away from God over and over again. Why do you think that right at the end your heart's suddenly going to be softer when your belief has been shaped by patterns of behavior throughout all that time? So the bottom line is you could, having read a few verses here, go, Jesus is the right hand of the Father. He's the one who's in heaven. And notice, he's the one who decides who gets to be in paradise. He just told the thief. So this is all, you know, looking quite good. But then Jesus says something else in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, things just got more complicated. Jesus is saying, not everyone. Jesus is saying, not everyone. There is a criteria. There is some kind of judgment. And Jesus points out that obedience to God the Father is a big deal. He's speaking about the kingdom of God, which is the thing he spoke about more than anything else. The inbreaking of the kingdom made possible by Jesus coming now, life before death. That there is a reason to live. Let's keep reading about what Jesus has to say about this obedience. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone, anyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus spoke about paradise. He's now speaking about hell. And he's speaking about the root cause, not being the, the murder that you commit, but actually starting in your heart as you look down your nose at another image bearer and just write them off and just go, who are they? Jesus is saying, that's hell. That's hell breaking in already. And you need to nip that in the bud. Jesus keeps talking. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus spoke about hell a lot. And he didn't speak about it in a smug way. I'm right, you're wrong, you're going to burn. He spoke about it with deep compassion. And he warned everyone to choose life, not choose death. Jesus again said, then you will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. Jesus is saying there's a judgment to the devils and the angels, and I don't want you to be anywhere near it. Turn to me. Jesus says it takes radical action, but take the radical action. In Mark 9, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You might say, Paul, I've never thought Jesus would say these things. Well, he did. He did. And yet, people that were unlike Jesus, liked Jesus, right? They were totally unlike him, but they liked him. You had lepers gathering, outcasts, women caught in adultery, all kinds of people would lean in. And you might think, oh, I know why, because Jesus had some kind of soft message. He held something back. He he didn't want to offend anyone. Not at all the case. He spoke the truth in love. He spoke about might. Mighty, important matters, plainly, clearly, there is a judgment. I am the judge. And those who you think are going to be in are going to be out. And those who you think are out are going to be in. And it's all based on whether people accept me as their substitute or not. Accept me as the sacrificial lamb or not. Heather spoke about it in call to worship. There either is going to be death in the house or there's going to be a, a covering in the blood of Jesus. That's it. 
It doesn't matter how qualified you are. It doesn't matter how far you've traveled. It doesn't matter how many places you've gone to. What your CV on look, LinkedIn looks like, you either are covered by the blood of the lamb or you're representing yourself and you will be judged fully and it won't go well. And we as a community don't circle our wagons to exclude others, but we open our hearts and we move out in love to point everyone to Jesus who holds the keys of life. Every Sunday, the good news of Jesus will go out. Every meal we eat, every conversation we have, we become a people of love that point them towards this God.